All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast today with Roy Cohen. Hi, Roy. How are you doing? Hi, Jonathan. I'm, I'm good. Thanks for having me here. You are doing exciting work, as is every guest that we have on the show. But obviously, we're going to dive deeper into what exactly you are doing. You uh, are an entrepreneur. You have done very interesting uh, work prior to being an entrepreneur. Um, and obviously, the first question that we always ask our guests, uh, you know, to kind of jumpstart things is, um, you know, we would like to understand who, who is Roy? Where are you coming from? What is, what is kind of your story? Uh, you know, so if you would, if you could kind of like go through this in a, you know, kind of storytelling way. Uh, you know, through the different stages and how that basically led you to what you do today. Um, sure. So it all started long, long time ago. Um, I was born and raised in Israel, Tel Aviv. Um, I, I, I have a very weird journey that it's not the typical, not the typical that leads to entrepreneurship, but also not the typical that leads you to mental health uh in general so i started my first degree was software engineering the minute i got out of college with that degree i decided that i won't touch coding ever again after that my dream at that time was to um have my own advertising agency that was my dream job i worked at different advertising agencies for almost 20 years um at one point, I decided to start my own agency together with my uh, partner, a, a young man. We had our own agency for four years during the, the, the sort of the 2009 uh, uh, catastrophe. Eventually, we sold it to the same agency that I was working uh, prior to that. And even if you look at my journey through advertising agencies, I did everything from account executive to uh, creative to uh, running digital uh, agencies and it was a very interesting experience because you get to work with so many different industries and learn basically how to tell their stories and I think it came into fruition and it had a lot of benefits in the journey that I currently have with uh, with behavior dance but long story short around 2012 i got tired of advertising it was working 24 7 with clients that basically kick whatever you create and tell you like why it's uh, super wrong and while it's fun it's very exhausting uh, uh, mentally at that point i wanted to uh, sort of jump to the other side of the street uh, and i started working for Wix. I know you had uh, a long block in the uh, in the podcast uh, prior to that. I joined in 2012, where it was a solid product post uh, post the the big uh, recession, um, and I did product marketing. So basically, it was taking my experience from the marketing side of things and figure out how do you translate different parts of the product to to consumers. Um, and I think the Wix's pool of consumers is so diverse that translating it to uh, uh, brides-to-be is one thing. Translating it to someone that owns a new business, uh, it's a completely different thing. And convincing a corporate to build the website with Wix was a completely different part. And 
it was a brilliant experience. Um, I came into Wix as a very arrogant uh, advertising professional. I had all my titles. I, I was a VP. I was a CEO. I was full of myself. Um, and the first three months, I literally failed everything that I've done at Wix. And at some point, uh, my uh, brilliant boss, then you have told me like, listen, from now on, everything you want to do, we're doing A-B test. I will do, I, I will do it my way and you'll do it your way. Again, I failed for another three months. Everything was a complete failure. And it's like, okay, now are you willing to listen? And this is where you switch from speaking the brand and it has to look cool and it has these color palettes and this font and this. And suddenly it's like, listen, eventually you need to tell someone that it's a website. They can create their own website and it's free and they can start. I mean, like, but it's ugly. It doesn't make sense. It needs to be copyrighted. And it's like, Eventually, I've proven you that that's not how things work. And this is what I learned that direct response to ads is a completely different uh, uh, industry. And also, when you measure everything and when you're becoming slave to the data, it shifts the way you do stuff and it shifted completely. Um, I spent two years at Wix. My last sort of project at Wix was to turn Facebook into a viable uh, revenue driver for uh, for Wix. Um, the uh, CMO of Wix closed myself, the head of uh, user acquisition and the head of the studio in a room for a month. And we had to crack, how do we make money out of Facebook? And at the end of the month, we created a strategy that worked really well. I think Wix at that time was the biggest uh, uh, advertising uh, spender at uh, Facebook. But I fell in love with the platform. I fell in love with how Facebook knows who's going to buy your product next without you needing to tell anything because people are obsessed with using all the targeting options on Facebook. But we found out that Facebook always knows better in that mm. sense. And it was super fascinating for me. Um, so I talked to a friend that worked at Facebook. He said like, oh, we're looking for a, a client partner role, joined Facebook, moved to Dublin. Today, I'm still in Dublin eight years later. And I worked for Facebook for five years, three of them were in sales, two in creative shop. Um, and it's an interesting journey because through this process, I've got to dive deeper and deeper into the, the Facebook's algorithm. I think originally it was called OCPM, Optimized CPM. It changed the, the naming a couple of times, but the basic stays the same. And it's not only for ads. Facebook learns how you consume different types of content. And based on that, you can predict what are the things that you want to want to see next, whether it's a picture of a cat or something about a, a science. And the same applies for ads. And people tend to think that Facebook listens to them. My friends con continue, they still do blame me for like Facebook listens to me. And like, no, 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 they don't need to listen to you. you spread so many breadcrumbs around you with your digital behavior, that it's just observing it. When you realize something for the first time, you've already uh, sort of laid the infrastructure to identify that you're about to buy, I don't know, a new phone, for example. When you reach the realization, Facebook's algorithm already reached this realization and you don't have to search for it. And you don't have to say, I wanna buy a new phone for Facebook to know that you wanna buy a new phone. And I think this is something that made me realize that as human beings, it's 
kind of difficult for us to perceive how algorithms and big data lakes of digital behavior can literally help us understand human beings better. Yeah. And <clears throat> throughout my five years it, like at Facebook, it was always about like consumer behavior and how can we uh, leverage that. Um, when I left Facebook, I worked for uh, almost two years in a company called Vidmob. It's one of Facebook's biggest creative partners. And it, it was almost like a linear continuation to that uh, journey because what Vidmob are doing is they develop a system that can look at all the videos that you've used as an advertiser and figure out what specific element using image recognition and text recognition and, and voice recognition, what specific elements in a video drove people to buy your product. Mm -hmm. And it's granularity that every time we would present it to clients, they were like, it's mind blowing. They're like, no, no way, no way. One of my favorite examples was that we did an analysis for a client that showed that every time the presenter was smiling, it dropped conversion. People didn't like to see the presenter smiling. And it doesn't make sense. As a director, you, you want to see some, like someone smiling and you want them to look directly to the camera. And we like the analysis showed us that when the presenter is smiling and looking directly to camera, it like basically kills the ad. So we edited a new version, cut out all the, the direct looks into the camera. It was probably the ugliest ad they ran ever, but it was the most profitable one for six months. And again, it's another re reassurance that the data knows better than uh, a lot of uh, human beings. And we have a lot of um, basic assumptions that the data actually pulls wrong. While uh, doing this, I decided that I want to dive deeper into why we act the way we do and decided to pivot my life again. This time I did a master's in neuroscience uh, in King's College London. And it's a master's program that focuses mostly on mental health. Um, and the more we got to dive into psychiatry, I was getting furious and agitated because psychiatry is a messed up industry. Uh, if you look at the accuracy level and the levels of false positives, especially when you come from a, a, like an industry where everything is measured in Excel, and if you have even 20% false positives in your leads, for example, you kill the campaign. It's a non-effective campaign. And yet all the mental health disorders, the diagnosis suffers from over 50% false positives. So, Literally, when you go to a psychiatrist and get a diagnosis, it's like throwing a coin. Like that would give you the same levels of accuracy. Uh, and it drove me nuts. And as we went further with the program, I'm like, wait, why did, didn't anyone do an algorithm like Facebook does that looks at your digital behavior and predict your mental well-being and your, uh, your mental health? And this is where I decided to uh, start Behavidence. Behavidence is a company that develops digital phenotypes for mental health. So today we have three digital phenotypes for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Soon we'll have postpartum depression, autism, bipolar disorder, and employee burnout. And it's, it's amazing how accurate just looking at what you're doing on your phone can be in predicting your uh, uh, your mental health condition and if you think about it it removes all the biases it removes all the self-declaration in questionnaires or talking to a professional and it's it's being slave to the science 
and this is my journey in the last i think since june 2020 this is where we, we started behavidence um and yeah here we are today all right before we go um you know deeper into the actual product and company and everything i said i want to talk about the founding process so i i i admire that i admire your uh, choice um of saying hey i'm actually going to do a master's okay um in neuroscience just because of curiosity you know and and, and it, it takes a lot because you know the average Joe <laughs> does an MBA, you know, after, after a couple of years, and that is kind of like a strategic approach by a lot of people that are working in the corporate world, or, you know, it's kind of like a check mark. but like doing a master's in a very specific field, you know, once you've already had a career and work and, and you know, we're um, earning your money and, and stuff like that, you know, that not a lot of people are doing that. I literally, I know, and the people I know that have done that, are, are, are really impressive people by their background and, and like also by their intelligence. But, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about this process. You decide to do the master's, like, how does that work? You're in Dublin, then you, what, what, do you move to London? Do you, do you, uh, it was Corona, so remotely, I guess. How did you find your co-founders? You know, guide me through this process. So it all started when I listened to a podcast. Uh, there's a podcast called The Impact Theory with Tom Biller. Um, and there was an episode uh, where he host, hosted Moran Self, Professor Moran Self, uh, that was a computer hacker, got tons of money. He was a, a software engineer, a very successful one. He was doing security for the biggest banks, like cybersecurity for the biggest banks in the world. And I think when he was around 36, if I remember correctly, someone told him, like, listen, what you're doing is no science because you're trying to figure out how the uh, uh, breaking will be done what people understand about other people and where are the the sort of loopholes that people can uh, uh, use to get into the process and he decided to do a master's in neuroscience and then a phd in neuroscience and now he is like one of the biggest researchers in computational uh, neuroscience and the, I, I really remember that at the end of this episode i'm like wait that means that i can do it as well i was at that time 38 um when i was 39 i'm like okay i'm doing this and i literally jumped and i have this tendency to jump into the water of journeys that i feel super passionate without doing any previous investigation I'm like that's it i'm going in and we'll figure out because eventually you can deal with any crisis or any challenges along the way if you are passionate enough about the journey um and i looked for a master's program my i have a previous master's in management uh, as you as you uh, uh, predicted uh, earlier, but with this one, I, I was looking for remote. It was actually before uh, before COVID started, but I, I was looking for remote program because I didn't have the capacity to be in a university on an ongoing basis. I, I had my work, I had to make money, pay mortgage, and uh, and all that, and. Weirdly enough, I, I was targeted at some point by uh, King's College uh, uh, Applied Neuroscience Masters. Um, I read a little bit about it. I assumed that they won't let me in, that I don't have the previous knowledge to do that. Um, weirdly enough, they took me uh, for the program. And 
I, I must say it was the best online studying experience that I had um, because it's awkward to teach neuroscience remotely mm-hmm. with uh, video lectures and also you, you, you need to see a brain. Uh, and it's brilliant how they overcame the barriers of teaching neuroscience, uh, especially when it focuses on mental health online. Sort of a side note, but when COVID started, it took King's College a week to shift all the students to fully online uh, plans. All and that for me was like, okay, you're moving fast and you're like also looking at the future rather than like, oh, let's, yeah. your lectures will be available uh, online. Um, so while I was studying, I started complaining on LinkedIn. That's my tendency. I complain on social networks. Uh, and I complain about everything from music to work to whatever it is. And the more we got to dive into, uh, I remember that there was a slide that they showed us, the level of agreement between two psychiatrists on the diagnosis of uh, depression. And just as a side note, depression is the heaviest uh, uh, burden on global economy more than any other non-communicable disorder. That's the World Health Organization. Yet, when you see the only meta-analysis that was done, it was done, I think, in 2014. And it checked the level of agreement between two psychiatrists uh, on the diagnosis of depression, and it was below 30%. And like, that can be. My my dad has been diagnosed with depression long, long time ago. My grandma was diagnosed with depression. I know so many people around me that suffer from depression. And yet, you learn that when the psychiatrists give you the diagnosis, they, they have no clue what they're talking about. And we, we are now working with like top-notch psychiatrists and they say like, listen, when I tell someone you have depression, my hands are shaking because they don't have the tools to actually measure and know for sure. Like I can put them under a CT or MRI device and get the answer. Uh, and I started writing about this in a very vicious and angry way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how I met the founding team uh, of Behaviorance. Um, so the found, founding team consisted of two other co-founders and another, uh, uh, the first team member or, or leadership role. Uh, the first one to join was my, my, my co-founder and then partner, Dr. Girish Srinivasan. Um, he hates that I say it, but I will say it and now it will stay on record for good. I think he developed most of the MRI devices that currently are out there. He worked in Toshiba Healthcare, GE Healthcare, Samsung Healthcare. He's a bioengineer. Um, sort of, he, he did the journey from software engineering to uh, uh, bioengineering. And he also, like, when we started talking, he's like, listen, even if we had access to MRIs on a day to day basis, it wouldn't give us the answer. Uh, and he was curious can we develop another system that would be cheaper, faster, uh, and more accurate to give us the data that we need to detect depression and anxiety and, and, and so forth. Um, and we started talking, I, I asked him like, I have this idea, do you think it can work? And he was like, of course it can work. Let's, let's give it a go. Um, I think it was two days later, I, uh, I was reached out by Dr. Janine Ellenberger. She's a physician with 25 years of experience. Um, she practiced in, in South Africa and in the UK. And uh, 
she had two businesses in the US mostly about skincare and I was like oh, what do you have to do with the mental health and she said like listen 40 percent when you have a, a GP practice 40 percent of the, the uh, patients that you'll see are having some kind of underlying mental uh, uh, mental condition uh, and it affects everything around them so they can have diabetes but the depression the underlying depression is actually causing them to adhere to therapy in in a worse way than someone with a treated uh, depression mm-hmm. um, and and also she had her own experience with false diagnosis of family members that were misdiagnosed again and again and again and being medicated for that uh, and her conviction into fixing this were just like beyond compare um, and the last member that joined at June 2020 was uh, Sonia Chudari. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her surname correctly uh, she's our head of research but she's a clinical psychologist and she was working with John Torres uh, and she also came to the conclusion that like we need to find better ways to to, to measure ongoing interventions because right now Think about companies like Talkspace, BetterHelp, or even just going to a therapist, face-to-face therapist. How do you measure if it's working or not? Uh, it, it, the best case scenario is that you'll go to a psychiatrist three months later, and they will give you PHQ-9 or ask you, like, interview you for, like, 18 questions, and will tell you, your depression is better. Is this a metric that you want to rely on when you're giving medication? I doubt it. And all of us have the same sort of notion. We need to fix this. Something is not working. And this is the team that started Behavidence. This is June 2020. We all jumped on this journey. I literally gave up a really good salary. Uh, I gave up a lot of things. I actually started spending my savings on getting Behavidence running. The entire founding team, which consisted of eight people, worked for more than a year without getting paid. Oh, uh, that's pretty yeah, and our biggest currency is probably the passion. We are obsessed with what we're doing. It's addictive on one hand, but we, but we can be annoying as hell because we would argue like crazy with anyone that dares to doubt the solution. That is crazy. So, okay, and then, so for, for an entire year, okay, and that, that, is, that is insane. So what's interesting as well that, I mean, if you said you started in May, like you started your master's in May and <laughs> you're forming a company, that's interesting. That, that is... Uh, no, but it, it was a year before. So we started the company. We started the company when I was one year into my master's. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. But you yeah. were. Ah, okay. Okay. So, and you you met these guys basically by just you know stating your opinion online. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think our, our lead investor was. I think that they were super worried that we won't get along, like the founding team, because we only met online. And usually, like when you look at a startup. You would see two uh, college friends that started to uh, fix this thing and i actually feel that it's a huge benefit on our end because we are there because of our passion to this specific solution not because we wanted to start a company or we wanted to to run a startup yeah um yep interesting Okay, so then let's talk about let's talk about the solution. I mean, you worked remotely for for for, for almost a year. Um, let, let's talk about the early development towards you know kind of building something, proving something, and then moving towards you know raising funding. You know, going through that period. 
Um, so we started with a basic app, Android app that collected only anonymized data. Uh, and I think this is a huge challenge, by the way, because the temptation of collecting identifiable data or data that could be identified in the wrong hands is great. And if you look at digital phenotyping companies prior to behavior dense, and even today, if you look at what Apple is trying to do uh, with Biogen, in many cases, th there's a tendency to collect keyboard uh, input and to identify typos. Uh, because typos can reflect on uh, cognitive decline, for example, or look at eye movement or voice uh, uh, vibrations. Um, having been through Cambridge Analytica crisis in Facebook, I told them like, listen, if we want to work with health organization, we cannot even remotely collect data that in the wrong hands will identify our users. Mm. Uh, it can be super interesting, but it will be non-viable if we want to escape. So we decided not to collect any identifiable information. Tomorrow, if all the data leaks from Behavidence, none of our users can be identified, not even by our team, by the way. Uh, and it's, it's a by design uh, decision. So we created an app that collects data, mostly how you operate apps on your phone. So when you open an app, when you close an app, durations, correlations between uh, different types of uh, apps, never, never what you're doing within the app. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing in, on your browser or uh, even what you do on Facebook. Yeah. And we wanted to see if that is enough to give us good recall rate of people with uh, mental health disorder. So based on my background we basically ran campaigns uh, on facebook and google and recruited people with depression anxiety and adhd mm -hmm. and at the beginning it was based on their own declaration so when they onboarded the app they had to say have you been diagnosed in the last two months with depression anxiety adhd we gave them i think 12 options at that time um we got around 3500 people 3,500? Yeah, that was so, around that. that. That was, I think, in March, March 21. How long did it take you to onboard 3,500? Uh, two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, but that's, that's my bread and butter. That was the easy part. Uh, but, um, and we were surprised to see how many people with mental disorders want to find a solution. Something that will give them the validation. It's not even like they're looking for someone to tell them like you're depressed today because they don't have it and they feel a lot of things and they always they are always suspecting whether it's deterioration or improvement or am i right when i feel that yeah. i'm more depressed today than uh, yesterday um and we started training models uh at the beginning we tried unsupervised machine learning uh, as you can guess, that was a complete failure. Uh, we, like, if we're thinking of the ground truth, I just said that it's completely all over the place and so inaccurate. So we're trying to base models based on that. So we did a lot of cleaning uh, of the data, removing outliers, recruiting more patients, so we'll have sufficient uh, uh, data pools. And at the end of a four, four months process, we had models 
that were 75 to 80% accurate in the, in the recall accuracy. So we would throw a cohort of like 50 people that we know have depression, 50 people that don't have depression. We ask them based on the last 24 hours of how they use their phone, can you tell us who has depression? And the recall accuracy was around the 75 to, uh, to 80, which is all, already a superior improvement to uh, the kappa rate of agreement between two psychiatrists. Um, but it wasn't enough because we said like, if we're claiming that the, the basic diagnosis is lacking the accuracy, we need to, to make it even better. Um, but at that point, we had an app that tells you on a daily basis how similar you are to someone with depression, how similar you are to someone with anxiety, how similar you are to someone with ADHD. Um, and we started getting feedback from patients telling us like, listen, this is amazing because one of our, my favorite stories, a user showed us that she, she's diagnosed with both anxiety and ADHD. And she showed mm -hmm. us that she decides when to take the medication when the behavior dance gouge basically goes over 70. When she gets over 70% similarity with ADHD, she's like, okay, this is the time to take the medication. Mm -hmm. And when she takes the medication, the ADHD will drop down, but you will see the anxiety comes up. And anxiety is a side effect of the medication. When you take amphetamines, in many cases, it induces anxiety. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why it's so hard to diagnose, because a lot of people that are getting a diagnosis of anxiety actually have ADHD that is not treated and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very encouraging for us. Um, and then we got a brilliant opportunity, which was a trans transformative moment in our life. Uh, we applied to a tech sprint with the Department of Veteran Affairs in the US. So a lot of people don't know this, but 22 veterans commit suicide in the US every day. And in many cases, every day. Yeah, it's a huge, huge, huge uh, challenge. And what people don't think about is that before you commit suicide, usually you do not yell it out of a rooftop, I'm going to commit suicide. You just disappear. The depression is pressing on you and you sort of seclude yourself from the world and at some point you just decide to take uh, take your life um and there was a tech sprint there's a, a body that is called the national uh, institution of artificial intelligence in the va and they had a competition of technologies to uh, uh, prevent suicide i think around 300 companies registered the actual sprint i think it was around 30 uh companies that started and we what we showed the VA test process is that we can detect the deterioration of depression without asking the patient anything so it can run in the background and when the level goes over a specific threshold we can alert family member caregiver someone in the VA the therapist uh, and even a third-party company that will just knock on your door and make sure that you're okay and take, take mm -hmm. you to the hospital if, if needed and I think it was uh I actually recall a meeting that all of us cried because one of the veterans told us, listen, it actually gave me the courage to go to, uh, to see a psychiatrist because mm -hmm. I always feel like I need to handle this. I, it's not, uh, I don't suffer from any psychiatric disorder. I'm completely fine. I'm completely fine. 
and mm-hmm. suddenly even the realization and like hey your depression is going up maybe there is something that you can uh, treat uh, and we won the first prize in this sprint and that was the first sort of sign of approval it, it's working mm-hmm. uh, and not only that it's working we got uh, uh, got paid by a federal entity um, at that time we were taking part of an accelerator, our first accelerator, Fusion LA. Uh, it's an accelerator that helps uh, Israeli-funded companies to uh, uh, start their journey in the US. Um, it was the point where this accelerator took us from being a complete B2C app, uh, where we had this dream of like, oh, we'll, we'll sell it to all the people with or without mental health, and that would be the most downloaded app uh to help with mental health but we realized that if we want to become if we really want to solve this problem all over the place we either need to develop the solutions so that could be therapeutic solutions or interventions of some sort but then when you map the market you see that there are so many companies that are trying to solve this and create the solutions uh, whether it's uh, therapeutics online or all sorts of meditation and, and, and whatnot. So we had this discussion and I said, like, listen, if we'll try to solve all of it, we need tons of money and yeah. we will always lag behind because there are so many amazing companies that are already solving this. And then the, the discussion we had inside this accelerator was like, okay, let's think of a different model, a B2B model where we're becoming the Google Analytics of mental health. Mm-hmm. So an SDK that better help, Talkspace, K-Health, whoever it is that deals with health can plug this SDK in the backend. And it gives you those mental health similarity scores. And it doesn't require the user to do anything special besides giving you the permission to see this data. Uh, but besides that, nothing has to change. There's no questionnaires. There's nothing like no other thing that you need to do. The app could actually stay in the background. You don't even need to open the app in order to generate the data. And I think this is a this was an enlightening moment where we decided like this is where we're heading a B2B B2B2C model um, aiming to all the big insurers, all those that suffer from the cost of care from underlying psychiatric disorders. And with that getting to the, the, the big chunk of people that actually need this uh, solution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, you know, I mean, this is a this is an incredible journey. Um, I, so let, let's talk about maybe because I have a feeling of that a lot of companies are so mental health as a category. So in general, let's, let's talk, you know, let's, let's kind of take a perspective from a capital from the capital markets. Um, so, I mean, everybody knows it. Who's who? I mean, who deals with this or is in the space, right? There's a lot of venture capital available. Um, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of capital uh, available, especially for digital health. Uh, you know, there has been a surge, obviously, in in funding. Uh, crazy amounts have been, you know, uh, put into all sorts of startups globally. I think US um, obviously is leading in that regard with, uh, you know, how many billions, I, I don't know, I don't have the exact number, but it's a lot, you know, you can check it out on, on Rock Health or whatever, they, I think they have some nice stats on that, but the same goes for the other 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 countries. So, 
And I have a feeling a lot, there is a lot, like some mental health as a category for let's say digital health more as a macro is something where there's a really a lot of companies that are trying to tackle this, right? And they're trying to tackle or, well, they're trying to create something from let's say different angles, right? From let's say medication to, um, you know, I don't know, exercise applications, whatever, like a lot is happening on this B2C um, field. But I think, but like really on this like marker side of, of things, so really identifying, you know, the, 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 the markers and really, and then also going the scientific route of like saying like, hey, you know, we can actually make a statement about that, which is like, you know, valid, it's proven. I don't think there is really a lot that is, that, that is out there, but then again, prove me wrong because you know your competition better than I do, you know, guide me through like, what is what is happening because again mental health is such a wide spectrum right can you or can you not cover everything right so you know what's your take on this the first slide in our uh, pitch deck for investors shows the ecosystem of uh, mental health and mental well-being tech yeah. and how much money is going it, it should reach by 2030 16 trillion dollars it's insane uh, sorry for the pun. Um, and then the question that follows it is like, do they even, all of these solutions, do they even know if, if it's working? How do they measure if it's working or not? And that's the huge, the biggest challenge. How do you measure if it's working or not? Um, and I honestly think that digital biomarkers are the solution to measure that only solution, because eventually if you, if you think about a psychiatrist, or a physician, when they look at your mental health, they're observing behavioral properties. What we're doing is exactly the same. We're observing behavioral properties just without the biases, biases of the uh, physician and biases of the patient. Um, we made a decision that we won't have a psychiatrist in our team. And the reason for that is if you look at the last 10 to 15 years of companies that try to do digital phenotyping for mental health, they were always led by a psychiatrist. And then instead of listening to the data, you're trying to train a model to predict something that was proven in a research prior to that. Right. So for example, people with schizophrenia tend to walk around more and move more. Let's track the GPS. So you already have the conclusion before you started looking at the data and you're looking at a data point that is biased to begin with. Um, and I want us to remove the biases even in the training of the models. So we did sort of an, a, a reverse engineering of that. We said like, listen, let's take all these people with depression and try to figure out what's common for the right now definition of, of depression. If, like in my honest opinion, five years from now, we will change the definition of depression completely. I think that the definition by itself, the DSM-5, the ICD-11 definition of depression and anxiety are completely, I can't say this on the podcast, messed up. Hmm. Um, and it requires fixing. But we had to start from some point and the point that we got until now, and if you look at the structure of our company, we're 50% scientists, 
that are doing research and 50% software engineers and data scientists that are trying to build the product to, uh, so we call it research and uh, the other side is deliverables. Because today it's an SDK and, and an app, tomorrow it may be a device that you wear on your head or something. Um, but having work in that way and enriching, so the two sides of the company are enriching each other uh, and teaching each other how to look at things with an unbiased uh, perspective, got us to a point, uh, and this is something I'm super proud of, we're publishing the first peer-reviewed uh, study that we've done, it's currently the most accurate way to detect depression. So we've reached 89% accuracy for depression and we measured it with a very solid ground truth, the PHQ-9 questionnaire, which in the US, if you even if you're having an orthopedic surgery, you will get a PHQ-9 before the surgery just to make sure that you're not suffering from underlying uh, psychiatric disorder. And we can predict the PHQ score without asking you anything. Mm. So even tracking on a day-by-day -day level, Think about veterans tracking your depression on day by day level without harassing you and without yeah. forcing you. And in many cases, when you suffer from depression, you don't want to participate in this. Yeah. Um, I, I have a friend that uh, suffers from uh, bipolar disorder and he told me like, listen, if I have one more app that asks me only three questions a day to tell me if I'm having a manic uh, state or a depressive state, I will break my phone. And it, it really resonated with me and this is the reason why we don't have any questionnaires and any process because there are so many apps and solutions that just report your moods i wrote like at, at one point i led the mobile app uh, uh, vertical at facebook uh, for israel i work with so many apps the biggest challenge is to get to the top 10 to be on, on a phone that someone will actually use you on a weekly basis yeah. like the retention levels are below three percent like it's super easy to get installations that's no-brainer but to get people to actually use your app is almost impossible because you have your list of apps for most of us it's like chatting and messaging uh, uh, social apps of some sort and youtube and probably something from google getting into this chart is almost impossible mm -hmm. and this is why we wanted to make a very passive app that solves this in in a completely like uh, unnoticed uh, way so anyway a lot of money is going into this industry, but it's based on fuzzy constructs and it's unmeasured. So we're trying to fix something without having a metric to see if it's working or not. Yeah, but this is the right approach. So I mean, so uh, you know, looking at what's in science or scientists are also you know the ones that are at the top or kind of at the forefront of, of working on this. I mean, this is this is what it is, right? Passive data collection. Um, and I think that will go for everything. So this is, I, I think, in the variable, in the variable industry in general, like a big discussion of like, is the user supposed to look at data that he's basically producing, right? Because like, what is he, like, what is he or she going to do about this or do with it? Like, who is putting context to it, right? You don't want to get notifications all the time of like, okay, so this is your heart rate or this is, you know, I don't know your glucose level or whatever it is, right? What are you supposed to do with that? And I, and I think so the passive data collection part is definitely a smart one. The question only is, I mean, you still need to get on the phone of the user, right? So um, what do you think in terms of like having, you know, I've seen different approaches, right? So, I mean, you can go the approach of like being a consumer product of like trying to get, you know, people sign up for your app, right? Try to get, try to get people download your app, et cetera. 
that is a possibility or you start to work with a really niche peer group of like for example you target athletes or whatever right so let's say which which you know okay so i target an organization and through that organization i get users for my for my for my application right so what what do you think is the approach because as you said right it's getting more difficult and difficult if you have an application, for example, to get it on people's phones, just because there's just an abundance of that, even if you have a good product that is, you know, not asking any direct action from the user, but it's like passively collecting stuff. Um, yeah, that was the challenge we faced when we started the, the Fusion LA Accelerator. Today, we're targeting mostly insurance companies. Mm. And the reason for that, insurance and employers, because mm -hmm. in many cases, they already have an app that sits on the user's phone. No one's using it, or sometimes they do use it because they have to use it to scan the receipts and get paid, get their claims uh, uh, for the doctor's visit. But we don't need them to open the app. I don't care if the engagement is zero. The app, like our process will still work in the background. So we developed an SDK, Software Developer Kit, which is basically a piece of code that you can put in any app that is currently on the phone. So for example, let's take Headspace. A lot of people are using Headspace to do meditation. You can plug in the evidence SDK in the background and it generates those digital phenotypes. It can measure the levels of anxiety, depression, and ADHD. And then Headspace can use this data and say like, listen, your anxiety is higher today. Maybe you should do this session of 10 minutes of uh, meditation or even measure if you're doing every day 10 minutes of meditation, it reduces your anxiety, reflect it to the user in return. But the same could apply for companies like Talkspace, uh, but also the big insurance companies like Anthem and Humana. Because if you have this data, you can say like, listen, this patient with diabetes cost me twice as much as this patient with diabetes. And the reason for that is because they have underlying depression that they never thought to take care of it. And then you can just pop up and say like, hey, you're a bit uh, off today. Maybe you should see this therapist or maybe you should fill in this questionnaire and being this trigger to measure intervention to offer based on that intervention and sometimes to save lives based upon that. So we're looking at a completely passive model where we just plug into apps that are already on your phone. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be the app on your phone. And right now, the Behaviance app, which is mainly used for research, our retention rate at some point got to 14% after 30 days, which is insane. It's brilliant, brilliant retention rate. The investors were super happy. I'm like, we are concerned as hell because it means that people are opening the app again and again to look at their mental health. And that means that it creates some kind of self-feeding yeah. uh, panic. So we actually had the project of reducing the retention uh, of the app. Wow. But, <laughs> but the truth is that we prefer that it sits behind the scenes in, an, in another app that is already on your phone and it will help this app to perform better or to offer you the right solution in the right time and maybe even give an additional second opinion to your psychiatrist yeah so that, that's that's a question so I, this is definitely the right approach I, I see this definitely as the right approach the question the question is because it's more difficult to execute right it's more difficult to get to this stage because so as well what you said right transferring this data to let's say the authorities to let's say the the insurance or let's say to psychiatrists and stuff like that to act upon this right because mm -hmm. be, be, because this requires partnerships this requires let's say you know you being approved as a company etc this is a long process i'm actually very astonished because 
you guys have been existing for two years now that you know that you are this early on in the process of, of already getting there because like I, it seems to me to be a difficult process right it is it's definitely a more difficult process um but i think our approach up until now was listen let's do a pilot look at our data mm -hmm. and tell us what you think and what you want to do with it and every time we did it the client converts and we have a couple of insurance companies that are working with us we have a couple of national and federal entities in the yeah. us in the uk uh, um, and in south africa that are working with us so you can feel that there's there's a need there's an actual need within these companies to measure this and to help patients because it costs it in many cases it's unseen and it costs the companies a lot of money so mm -hmm. it's beneficial for both sides having said that we keep reinforcing that the control stays with the user so mm -hmm. for example if a user of a specific insurance company that is using behaviorance sdk doesn't want to share it with the insurance company they can opt out immediately this is one of the basics of our agreement the control needs to stay with the user the user mm -hmm. decides who gets to see the mental health yeah. without this call and who yeah. doesn't and they can always uh, uh, plug on and think this also have this and the non-identifiable information made it super easy for a lot of companies to say like okay we have nothing to lose legally it's super easy compliance wise it's super easy we're not collecting any phi a uh, private uh, health, health information so it made it quite attractive solution that requires five minutes of a software engineer uh super valuable data and you're not giving away or you're not risking sensitive data transfer yeah interesting okay hey um roy this was this this great well, we unfortunately are already running out of time you know but it was you know th thanks fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks thanks for being on the podcast you know we should definitely keep this keep this conversation going maybe we'll have you on next time you know but this is super interesting uh you know this is definitely a very you know great approach that you guys are doing so thanks a lot for being on the show man thank you so much Jonathan. it's been a pleasure